Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. You want to talk about great production value? How about a legit hot, fluffy breakfast scramble that's packed with all your favorite ingredients? It's called Just Crack an Egg, and all you have to do is add a fresh egg over their hearty ingredients, then stir, microwave, and enjoy any day of the week. It takes less than two minutes to make. Find all seven varieties of Just Crack an Egg in the egg aisle. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's member-only exclusive rates and more. Visit NavyFederal.org watch for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Hey guys, welcome to The Watch. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Pack show today. I talked with a little unknown talent coming up in the uh, television business named Andy Greenwald live from the set of Briar Patch in New Mexico. And we had a special appearance from Rosario Dawson. Although I don't know that Rosario Dawson necessarily knew that she was on a podcast and or what this podcast was. But it was, a, you know, quite a life accomplishment, just the same, just to have her on the pod. So Andy and Rosario Dawson to start off live from New Mexico talking about the first days of shooting Briar Patch. That was awesome. Then I had Adam Neiman come on, and Adam and I talked about the first three episodes of Too Old to Die Young, the new show on Amazon from Nicholas Winding Refn, starring Miles Teller. It is a lot. It is a real, real, real tough proposition. I think it's rewarding. I'm not, it's not a bit, although sometimes I don't know where the bit stops and the real comes in, but I really, really am obsessed with this show right now. Not only because of what it is, which is a basically psychedelic LA underworld story, but it's also, it's like the questions it's asking of viewers. How patient are you? Do you find this boring? Is boring always a bad thing, etc.? So, Really interesting conversation with Adam about artistic intention and autourism and all those kinds of things. Adam's such a great film writer. It's always great to have him on the watch. I was then joined by Kaya McMullen, two for two for Kaya, to talk quickly about Big Little Lies, episode two. And then finally, I talked to Micah Peters about the premiere episode of Euphoria on HBO. So a packed show, something for everybody. Let's get into the watch. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me from an undisclosed location in New Mexico, he will fix it in post. It's Andy Greenwald! <laughs> My friend, I'm standing. It's 90 degrees. I'm in a parking lot. There's equipment everywhere. We are in a neighborhood that it's affectionately known as the war zone. <laughs> and uh, my assistant here, who is lovely, who listens to the podcast, was responding to emails crouched, kind of, while the rest of us were standing. So <laughs> that's my day. How are you guys doing? We're killing it, man. It's overcast. It's June gloom. Anthony Davis is a Laker. Uh, I'm, I'm now, just, you didn't get a weekend. I did not get a weekend because I spent all weekend watching Too Old to Die Young, which is... Yeah. possibly the least Andy show I've ever seen in my life. So it's I'm almost a shame you're not here. I know. And then, uh, yeah, I had I had NBA stuff on Saturday. I went to a concert last night at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. Wow. Wait, can I have, bring someone onto our podcast for the first time? Oh, sure. Who that? 
Rosario, Rosario, I'm recording a podcast right now. Yes. Hey, what's up, Rosario? How are we doing on our first day of set? How are you feeling? How are you feeling? I feel great. I feel great. You're really good at acting. Oh, I yeah, I can pretend (laughs) really well. Rosario, how is Andy's show running? Well, he's wearing running shoes, so I think he's ready. (laughs) He's really taking this seriously. I got special shoes for production. Uh They match his headphones. They really do. I'm not even kidding. Sneakers. I think Chris is curious about my like demeanor, my harsh taskmaster. Yeah, he's grinning all the time. He doesn't get it. You're supposed to be super cool in Hollywood, and all he does is keep grinning and saying how happy he is. Like, no, no, you're doing this all wrong. <laughs> I know. I thought I would come in here with like a very different attitude, you know, and that like impress everyone and be stern. But you yeah. guys all laugh at me, so I turn red all the time. <laughs> yeah, you got to go Full Metal <laughs> Jacket, Andy. When are you going to start shouting out commands? Season two. Yeah. Okay. I can't demand anything of you. I'm going to leave Rosario to her Gatorade. She did not have a scheduled press avail. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. I'll tell your publicist later. (laughs) She's just enjoying a Gatorade, but this is what happens when you make a show with that. I I need to ask you the question America wants to know the answer to. Yeah. What flavor of Gatorade does Rosario Dawson prefer? It was like a light lavender color. I feel like it's one that's not in circulation. You know what I mean? I feel like it's just... It's a celebrity Gatorade Only high-key influencers get this lavender. Okay. How's life been in New Mexico so far? Um, things are good. Things are very good. This is the first morning that so we've been at this since seven. And it's just kind of amazing because, you know, you, you, we did the pilot and that was a great experience. And then worked like crazy all winter. And then all of a sudden we're just back here. And... And Rosario and Eddie are back in character sitting across from each other in this first scene we're doing, which is an episode, we're doing a scene from episode three, start the day, because we're block shooting two and three. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit out of order. And, you know, it's good. It's good. I would say the main difference between, quote unquote, show running a pilot and a series is that on the pilot, you're just, you're just along for the ride. It's just like a spectator sport. It's total pleasure. And then for pilot, I'm sitting here watching them act and be geniuses. and in the back of my mind, I'm remembering that I have writer drafts of the scripts for eight and nine in my bag, and I have to write ten. So it's a little more stressful. Yeah. But otherwise, otherwise great. And also, um, over the weekend, my family came and they, for Father's Day, they picked out a hat for me, which is going to be really good just for the complexion. They you know? picked out a hat for you? So is I, it like a sun hat or is it like a Phillies hat? It's like a Terrence Malick hat. <laughs> oh, um, cool, cool. <laughs> New Mexico hasn't changed you at all. For the record. They did not buy me the hat for Father's Day because me getting to go make a show is my Father's Day present. <laughs> they picked it out for me, which I appreciated. Um, so have you gotten a chance to watch anything while you've been down there or have you just been work, 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 work? I've just, I've, I've just been working. I've just been working. The days are so long that the thought of going back to the hotel and not moving into a house for a couple of weeks and just you know curling up with a little chamomile tea in the latest episode of Chernobyl is not, not it. You know what I I mean? I don't know if you get, do you get like an hour for lunch? Yeah, get an hour. So you could watch half of one episode of Too Old to Die Young. Give me your pitch for why I would do this other than it'll be really funny for me to read. No, honestly, like this, I'm about to talk to Adam Naiman about this. It's, it's just, they're not, it's not for you, man. It's just like, I don't think I wouldn't subject (laughs) you to it. I wouldn't expect you to like it. I wouldn't expect you to find it, you know, redeeming in any way morally or intellectually or artistically but it speaks to me on a subcutaneous level i don't know what to tell you how would you describe the rapport you have with a certain type of millennial male actor because everyone <laughs> remembers your famous twitter beef with ansel elgort uh-huh. and now 
the god M. Teller is RTing you into the feed, into the main feed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Miles Teller, I got the retweet from Miles Teller this weekend, which is great because I've always been a big supporter. He, he, I have nothing but respect for my president, you know? He's been doing a great job. And I had ma- I made a, an NBA joke about how the NBA was cutting into my too old to die young time. And, and MT retweeted it. The MTRT. Yeah. You got the, the, the impressive MTRT. So I, basically, our lives are going great. Yeah. Is the takeaway. But I, I, thank you for letting me jump back on. Thank you for having Rosario Dawson jump on. I'm going to grab what I can grab until the cast publicists realize this is just a long con to uh, boost our podcast, which, by the way, is going great. I have a lot of respect to Kaya for seeing the corner open to her and taking it with the savagery of Marlo Stanfield. I think that's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Yeah. And the podcast is being well listened to by the crew, all of whom who've told me the last few episodes were great. They've said it so many times that I'm beginning to get a little itchy. I'm yeah. going to be honest with you. Well, look, Miles is only going to keep your seat warm for so long, and then we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to get, have open auditions. Andy, obviously, you'll be back probably at the end of summer. We'll have you on. You know, you'll call in intermittently. Until then, man. Good luck today. Good luck this week. We can't wait to see what you make. Thank you, buddy. Miss everybody. Miss the Baranskis. Thanks for letting me do this. Okay, now I am joined by my buddy Adam Neiman. Adam, you can read his amazing film criticism and film essays on TheRigger.com, among other places. He has a wonderful book that you can purchase uh, wherever you get books about the Coen brothers. Adam, what's the, 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 this, that movie really tied the room together? The book really ties the film together. The book really ties the film together. I'm sorry for forgetting that. that so that, that's Adam Neiman's book on the Coen brothers. He's been on before. We love having him on. And I'm really excited to talk to him today. Not only is Adam from Toronto and is currently probably 94% pure champagne as he watches the Raptors parade, but Adam and I went on a little journey together. Even though he was in Canada and I was in Los Angeles this weekend, we both watched the first three episodes of Nicholas Winding Refn's new Amazon thing. And I I specify thing because I'm not quite sure whether you want to call it a movie or a TV show or a performance art piece. It's called Too Old to Die Young, and it stars Miles Teller, among other people. And it is essentially, I guess you could call it a Los Angeles noir, but that would only be the most surface description of what you'll find there. Now, uh, I don't know if anybody, I hope people got a chance to watch some of it. Adam and I are going to talk about stuff that happens in the first three episodes, but really I want to have like a larger conversation with Adam about the intentions and the accomplishments or failures of this show because it is one of the most confounding and I think in some ways courageous, but in some ways foolhardy and in some ways inspiring and in some ways boring things I've seen in a really long time. Uh, I described it to a friend of mine this weekend as being like when Miles Davis would turn his back on the audience and play a solo, except you're not sure if Miles Davis is actually good at jazz. If that was, if you can imagine that. So let me just set it up. I guess, you know, it's basically a show about a cop played by Miles Teller who uh, gets involved with the underworld as a both investigator and a participant. And there's a plot line about a cartel. There's a plot line about Teller. John Hawks shows up as a vigilante at one point in the first three episodes. Each episode is almost a distinct entity from itself. There are plot lines that carry over, but honestly, they almost seem uh, to exist separate from themselves. And I think that was Wending Refn's 
uh, intention. He said he didn't particularly care if people watch them in order. He thinks that they could be watched separately or in different orders. I agree with him. It actually, you know, it, 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 a lot of people are always asking like, oh, do I have to watch the first season of this to catch up? In this case, I don't even know what you have to watch. I think that you will find pretty quickly when you start watching, this is a show told in a completely different visual language than most other television. And Adam, the first thing I thought of when I was watching this, and I'm sure this might sound sacrilegious to you, was Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah, I mean, I thought of it too. I think David Lynch is one of the filmmakers who Wendy Gresson has been chasing for a long time. A bit like, you know, that, that image of like a big goofy golden retriever chasing the car. You know, yeah. he's not going to know what he does to catches him. You know, there's, there's Lynch, there's Tarantino, there's Kubrick. A lot of very, like, very alpha male, muscular, I guess you'd call them kind of broter filmmakers that Lesson loves. I mean, this is a guy who dedicated one film to Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 the insane creator of films like El Topo and The Holy Mountain. I mean, what you were saying, because I hadn't heard you say this yet when we were messaging, that the thing about Miles Davis is back to the audience not knowing that he's good at jazz is hilarious. <laughs> Because I think with Refn, it can be hard to tell sometimes, especially for me, I'm quite avowedly not a fan. Like, if he's a great filmmaker or a terrible filmmaker, or if those two things are, are indivisible, you know? Yeah. Like, it's really important to, to mention, I think, and you alluded to it in the whole out-of-order thing, this was first seen by the world back in May at Cannes when he presented the fourth and fifth episodes as one two-hour and 20-minute movie like at Cannes. And the Cannes Film Festival is the kind of context for a filmmaker like Wendy Gresson because he's a hardcore art filmmaker, you know? He just happens to intersect with with genre. I don't know if it's like the gentrification of genre cinema or this art house, grindhouse overlap, but this is a big thing that's happened in the last 10 years. You see it with filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro winning an Oscar or Bong Joon-ho, certainly... Tarantino and David Lynch are like the elder statesmen of this. And and Refn is is a contender. He's like a heavyweight contender in this group. So I just love the idea that this plays at Cannes, and then it also just plays, there's someone somewhere who accidentally turned this on because they have an Amazon Prime membership, you know? Yeah. Like they just buy stuff from Amazon, and then this is the first thing that came up on their Amazon feed one day, and they're watching it. And it's, it, it's a very hardcore, challenging, borderline avant-garde piece of work. And I just love the idea of someone stumbling on this and watching it because I don't think they're going to, I don't think they'll have ever seen anything like it. Right. And now, so you mentioned uh, Refn's interest in genre. In some ways, I think he's ultimately a provocateur who happens to make genre art. He happens to make things like Drive, Things like Only God Forgives, Neon Demon, Valhalla, Bronson. I think that what's I'm always trying to figure out with him is what he thinks of the material he's making. You know, what how or what he thinks of the material that he's filming. Now, this was uh Too Old to Die Young was written in collaboration with Ed Brubaker, who has a storied history as a comic book writer, worked on the last season of Westworld, I believe. And so there, there's there's a grounding, there is a story, there is dialogue, um, but reference treatment of this pushes it to almost the boundaries of, of what anybody's attention span can actually handle, by which I mean, the two characters will have a fairly run-of-the-mill cop drama exchange. 
I'm working this case. Well, who are you looking for? This person. Well, why are you asking me about it? Because I think that you have something to do with it. Well, I don't. Okay. That scene that I just mentioned will go on for five, six minutes. We'll feature 10 or 20 seconds of just shots of Miles Teller or Jenna Malone sitting there looking at one another. There are scenes set uh, in the Mexican cartel in the second episode where Refn will just run the camera on a dolly back and forth and he's almost panoramic, like, like inconceivably long dolly shots across landscapes, whether they are outdoor desert vistas or inside of a bar. And you're just sitting there as this incredible Cliff Martinez score plays, but you're not looking at anything. There is actually literally no direction being done. There's there's no like, this is why you should look over here because this is important to the story. It's just a mural of behavior. And the behavior isn't even that interesting. But I found myself unable to look away. Well, it, it, it's because he's really, really good at concentrating your attention. I mean, again, these are, these are subjective terms and it's weird. I'm kind of talking across purposes because I'm not a fan of his, but I would also say at this point that he's a master filmmaker, you know, and he has a way of seeing that somewhat derivative. I mean, I mentioned a bunch of people who he's emulating and certainly some of that slow panning or those, those reverse dolly shots are very Kubrickian. But like, this is obviously a way that he apprehends the world. He's been consistent in it. He's not one of these filmmakers who switches his style up. He kind of applies it regardless of what the movie he's making. That's why I like that you mentioned Ed Brubaker, because there's a really firm grounding in genre and maybe a set of influences there that are like a little earthier, you know, like yeah. Jim Thompson, that kind of really bloody, mean-spirited cult. And like, the question you have to ask with Refn is not where does the style come from? The style comes from the last 20 years of movies he's made. It's just what is its effect when applied to something that, you know, could be told by another director in not just half the time. Like, we're talking, like, exponentially shorter. You know? Oh, yeah. This is, like watching, uh, this is like watching Chinatown or something on, like, half speed or, or three-quarters speed. And I think some people find that really hypnotic, and I think some people find it unbelievably boring. But like you, even if it's slightly in a more bemused way, like, I can't look away. I'm just picturing the money that was being spent on it and what it's been spent on. And it's just hilarious. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the middle finger aspect of it is really there. And I, I sometimes wonder whether or not, you know, this is essentially a cop show as Houston rap. It's like DJ Screw pitched down, syrupy, long, slow, dragged out. And then much like DJ Screw treatments of rap songs, you can find new textures and new... uh new things to to sort of engage with within that slowness. And I did find that happening, especially during uh, the second episode, The Lovers, which I thought was at once the most boring episode and the most visually stunning. What I'm trying to figure out is whether or not this show is actually a commentary on our fascination with these kinds of stories and that he's almost saying, oh, do you want these guys to do a bunch of coke? Here. They're going to rub Coke all over each other's faces. Do you guys want these? Do you want to see this edgy portrayal of Mexico? Here it is as this almost perverse, um, hallucinatory, psychedelic experience. Do you think that he has that relationship to the material? Or do you think he's more, oh, this is fucking cool. Let's just extend it. Well, again, I have to watch 
what I say, maybe watch what I say more than, than what I write. But, you know, one of the big questions about him, and I'll, I'll use like really precise critical language, you might want to get to sources out. Like the question is, is he a dumbass? You know, is he a dumbass? <laughs> a question, is he a dumbass? Like people have been dumbass. I mean, this has literally been at the center of criticism around Nick Refn. If he makes public statements and presents himself in a certain way, even the way he is in this documentary his wife made about him called My Wife, My Life, directed by Nicholas Refn, which is all about the disaster making only God forgives. Like he kind of seems a little slow. You know, he he's one of those directors, like he did his criterion top ten list and he was talking about David Cronenberg's crash, and he's like, this movie is a great combination of sex and violence. And you just read that sentence, and you're like, you're not wrong, but like, that's all you've got to say. You know, like, he's, he's, he's kind of a bozo, or he acts like a bozo. It's a bit like Tarantino, who sometimes acts a lot dumber in public than he obviously is, or it's a version of how David Lynch will say, there's nothing going on in my movies, when obviously the, the, you know, the subtext and references are very precise. I mean, as for whether he's trying to, like, test us or, or confront us, I'm not sure. If you look at his movies, he has definitely got aspects of uh, a fetish for sadism and mm-hmm. humiliation. He's really interested in masculinity, and I think sometimes seeing that masculinity kind of fail. You know, if you've seen Only God Forgives, this is a movie where the Ryan Gosling character acts like a badass, but is completely ineffectual. And that's kind of the vibe I'm getting early on from Miles Teller in this is sort of doing a discount Gosling performance. But, you know, then the question I'd ask you, or the question that, that, that I've talked about with people while watching, it is like, is this show better or worse or more embarrassing or, or, or cooler if he's invested in it or if he's detached in it? Because I don't tend to like Pulp that thinks it's above Pulp. I think that's when you start getting into trouble. Yeah. Uh, this was kind of the same conversation we had about Dragged Across Concrete a couple months ago. And I don't know what you think, but that's what I really thought of while watching. That that's interesting. Slowness, that incredible slowness, that incredible sense of provocation, and it's hard to tell if it's earnest or if it's in quotes, you know? Dragged Across Concrete fills those empty moments with dialogue. And totally so, this yeah. this show, or, or at Too Old to Die Young, is pretty much just the star's reference camera. And the other thing that you know, you can we can talk about whether or not you know his sadism aside. I also wondered whether or not this show was like a sly critique of Tumblr screen grab, one perfect shot kind of the way we fetishize composition and. He was like, oh, do you think that this is a cool shot? What if you had to watch it for 93 seconds? <laughs> well, even the thing about, about one perfect shot, it, it's the same principle financially as, as in, it's like inflation, right? You know, if everything's a money shot, then nothing's a money shot. Right. And there are, there are some filmmakers, and it's all very taste-dependent, but like for me, a filmmaker like uh, Ho Xiao Shen or, or Stanley Kubrick, I mean, let's be honest, the, the sublime beauty of how they see the world and, and whatever, you don't OD on it. You don't get strung out by it. Like, it's just really great, one image after another. And in, in Refn's case, I, I do kind of get tired of it, but the formalist part of me admires his commitment to the to the bit, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but one thing that we should just comment on, I mean, it's hard, in some ways it's a hard show to spoil, and I think I've watched more of it than, than you have, and I'm not going to say anything about the fourth or fifth or sixth episodes, but, like, can we just talk about the absolute 
strangeness of that second episode, which is not just a different plot line or set of characters from what we see in the premiere. It's, I think, like 90% subtitled. Yeah. Yes. In, in, in Spanish. And, and, and like pivots on like, like a joke about Pele and like a soccer game between cops and, and cartel members. And like, it does find room. Again, I'm not spoiling it. Like there is violence and there is transgression in it, but like there's about as little as possible in that ratio to just sitting around. And that was the episode for me where even with all my, my predisposition against Refn while watching it, I just on some level was like, the fact that people are watching this is kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. And that episode, if there's like a uh, a sine wave, I, I was all over the place. I mean, and, and you're, you know, you mentioned that it's largely subtitled Spanish. Like that in and of itself forces you to watch because you can't go into the other room and make a sandwich and come back and be like, oh, okay, so they're still sitting in this dinner, but I could hear the dialogue from the other room. You literally have to, you're transfixed by really, really, really pedestrian domestic scenes that I'm not even spoiling anything include two soccer practices, two cleanings of colostomy bags, and endless scenes of watching an old guy sleep. I'm not I'm not joking. That's in this show that Amazon has got on Amazon Prime, the same place that has the new Tom Clancy show and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There's just this weird experiment going on. And I, I was almost like, there are times where I was like, I have to have arrived at a better point in my life to where I don't have to watch this. And then there were times where like, I am the only person who understands art in America when I was watching it. Well, but, but again, and you know, this is stuff that Sean Fennessy touched on in things he's written for Ringer and other critics have talked about, you and I have talked about it. It's this migration to some extent of a lot of aspects of cinephilia into, I guess, what we call TV and streaming culture. Yeah. And like, even Refn, who, again, at can talked about this stuff, and I rolled my eyes because he sounds so dumb when he talks about it. He's like, if Fritz Lang was alive today, he'd be making streaming, you know? And you sort of go, there's, like, you know, five things wrong with that sentence. But you also realize whether it's Alfonso Cuaron or the Coens or, frankly, Nick Refn, you know, the, the migration of what we might call kind of auteur cinema or festival cinema or art house cinema onto these streaming platforms, it is creating really interesting conundrums, not bad things, but like conundrums and questions and dilemmas about how do you classify things, how do you write about them, and I think on some level it's recalibrating audience expectations about what they might find at home, Yeah, you know? I mean, promise of these streaming services when they first started getting into business with directors was this idea that they were going to let them tell stories long form in depth at the pace or at the at least at the to the extent that they wanted to right so you got this wave of filmmakers like Fincher and Kerry Fukunaga and Steven Soderbergh and more recently guys like Bong who are making this really really visually compelling stuff but essentially are still playing by TV rules every one of those guys in their shows had an episode that had to sew things up. And in the in the case of the Nick and Steven Soderbergh, quite literally sew things up. But they are still sort of playing by a familiar prestige TV playbook. And it's only guys, it's really only Lynch and Refn that I've seen who have completely abandoned that while still having the um the veneer of it being quote unquote TV. Yeah, and I mean, you, you kind of started with Lynch, and coming back to him, I think, makes a lot of sense, because I think Lynch, in general, with the original Twin Peaks on ABC, 
like we're talking about the original, original one, you know, 30 years ago, it's kind of what created this idea, this appetite that you could have the really strong personality and aesthetic driven idea of an American cinema, which is not the only kind of cinema that exists, but like, let's say some vestige of the new Hollywood could, could exist in a TV format instead of the two things being antagonistic and antithetical towards each other. I mean, for me, and I, I try not to be hyperbolic, like Twin Peaks The Return is one of the greatest things I've seen in my life. And I'm deeply moved yeah. by its existence and by Lynch's uh, commitment to it. I feel like with Refn, the stakes are a little lower because he's not David Lynch and this is not Twin Peaks. But I think that the sense of vision and the refusal, as you say, to play by rules is, is somewhat similar. And even if I find the content questionable and it and to some extent also, he does pander because it's not like he's using his vision to show anything but sex and violence. I mean, that's what he's always tied to. I cannot help but admire it. Like, I never thought the word admiration of Nick Refn would enter my vocabulary matrix at the same time. <laughs> but I do. And we haven't even talked about just some of the weird performance things going on. I mean, you got to tell me, just because you haven't told me it, like what you think of, of, of Baldwin. Oh, like, well, he's doing a coked out imitation of his of Alec Baldwin. He he is yeah. like becoming his brother. It's in, it's nuts. He plays a hedge fund billionaire who is the father of a high school girl who is dating Miles Teller's 30-year-old homicide detective. Yeah, and he's holding a stuffed tiger and like kind of threatening him sotto voce through this stuffed tiger and like they kind of have a conversation with each other holding stuffed animals. You know, yeah. we're, we're not conveying it, but just but just describing it in an outline sort of gives some sense of maybe how strained the weirdness is, because strained weirdness is something I think Refn is, has been guilty of before. But I found the performance, particularly by Baldwin, like pretty magnetic. That's pretty funny stuff. And as for Miles Teller, I mean, we've never really seen him in a part, maybe with the exception of Whiplash, where he's had to like really dig deep and act, and he's doing the opposite of that here. He's not really digging deep at all. He's almost like just this mannequin. You know, do you remember the mannequin challenge where yeah. the camera just moves around frozen people? That's the aesthetic here for anyone who's listening if they want to know what it looks like. I think this show is asking all sorts of really, really interesting questions. It, it, just knowing 2019 and the way people's lives are, I just it's not going to be for everybody. If you want to make it a project and if you want to really just let it wash over you. I think it's an incredibly rewarding experience. It is just such a niche thing that it's hard to be like, stop what you're doing and watch this. But Adam, we're going to, you and I are going to go back and forth a little bit more in depth on the site once we get a couple of more episodes under our belt. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate you calling in and talking to us about it. And uh, we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me as always. Later, Adam. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the all-new BMW 3 Series. Don't be driven by technology. Drive it. The all-new BMW 3 Series is available with the state-of-the-art technology. That means feature after feature of the latest BMW innovations, such as the intelligent personal assistant, hands-free steering, backup assistant, parking assistant, frontal collision warning, twin-power turbo engine, and a completely redesigned interior with gesture control. What you'll love about this technology is that it is so simple and easy to use. But what you'll really love about this vehicle can't be listed or explained in words. It has to be felt on the road. This is kind of like, we could talk about Meryl Streep. We can talk about how she's such a good actress and the gestures she has or, or her timing or her control. 
but ultimately you can't really describe it. You have to see it. You have to see it in Big Little Lies season two. It's the same thing with this car. So hurry to your local BMW center today and test drive the all-new BMW 3 Series for yourself. The all-new BMW 3 Series. Don't be driven by technology. Drive it. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by City on a Hill, the action-packed new drama series from Showtime, the same network that brought you Billions, Homeland, and Ray Donovan. Set in a volatile early 90s era Boston when police corruption ran rampant through a system plagued by racism, City on a Hill stars award-winning actors Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge. The new series follows an upstanding district attorney played by Hodge who teams up with a corrupt FBI agent played by Bacon. The two form an unlikely alliance to take down a local crime family and clean up the city. Executive produced by Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Tom Fontana to stream the first episode for free. Go to show, sho.com slash city. City on a Hill airs Sundays at 9, only on Showtime. Now I'm joined by the new Andy. <laughs> it's slowly pro- taking over. Producer Kaya McMullen is back. Hello. Uh, she talked with me about the society last Thursday. Today she's talking with me about Big Little Lies, episode two. Kaya, now last week, just so people understand behind the curtain here, we record in a studio that kind of has this like half wall. Mm-hmm. And Kaya's on the other side of the half wall. But last week I recorded with my back to the half wall. So not only could I not see Kaya, but I couldn't even like really even perceive of Kaya. Oh my God, she just opened a sliding door. She's right there. Now I can see Kaya, so I feel like the the banter will be a lot sharper. Kaya, Big Little Lies, episode two, Telltale Hearts. Mm -hmm. Laura Dern episode. Uh, I know this was covered on Big Little Live with Amanda and Mina, and you can watch our Twitter after show after the East Coast airing of Big Little Lies every Sunday. Big Little Live. Great show. And I know that this has been discussed, but people really got to not talk out loud on the phone anymore because so much bad yeah. shit happened in this episode because Maddie was just walking around her kitchen. Well, no, she, was, she wasn't talking on the phone. She was talking on to society favorite, her daughter. That's right, Catherine Newton. Well, she yes. told Catherine Newton, or, or, what's, her, what's her name in the show? Catherine Newton's the actress. Abigail. Abigail. She told Abigail about sleeping with the theater director and a- Abigail then dialed that one up at the absolute moment that yeah. uh, Adam Scott's Ed character walked into the kitchen. That was actually a really, really good, well-played scene by the three of them, I thought. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it just seemed, oh, yeah, this is something that could happen in real life. And all of a sudden, you look up and poor Adam Scott. Poor Adam Scott. Poor man. Adam Scott. So the other major shooter drop was that Chloe, Madeline's younger daughter, overheard right. Madeline talking about uh, Ziggy being Perry, Alexander Skarsgård's child, um, when he sexually assaulted Shailene Woodley's character in the, you know, in the sort of flashbacks that happened in the first season. And so that Ziggy is half-brothers with Nicole Kidman Celeste's kids. And this was supposed to be a very well-kept secret, tightly guarded. I mean, isn't Chloe just the new Madeline in training? <laughs> Essentially, yes. Taking she is her it mother's upon daughter. herself to get into other people's business. The reason why I wanted to talk to you about this episode, aside from just sort of updating people on how we're doing with it, is that I thought that this was an example of a different flavor, but of the same food group that we had to eat of the end of Game of Thrones. Now, I know that you were not a big Game of Thrones person, but essentially what a lot of people, you know, sort of critiqued Game of Thrones for was 
they're doing all this stuff because they need to get the plot to a certain point. And even if they have to do some stupid shit to get there, they kind of have to take care of it. I felt like this season needed some tension, and now they got it. Right, and the tension is coming from basically Celeste kids learning of their new half-brother and also learning of the fact that their dad was uh, not a great guy. Right, It's so, and, and as, as does Mary Louise, who's played by Meryl Streep, and that's Perry's mother. And so it's essentially this secret that they held essentially for the off-season, so in between season one and season two, has now come out. Now, I think it's essential for the show to have dramatic tension. In fact, I was kind of hoping, at least for the sake of the show, that there might be some more drama between Jane and uh, Celeste. I thought the closing scene was very interesting of them all just kind of sitting around playing board games in uh, Shailene's apartment. Yeah, and and tearfully sort of like being a, a new kind of family. Family came up, the idea of family comes up throughout the episode of like what is a family and what constitutes familial bonds and even those look the other Perry's kids sons were like well Ziggy's already a friend is it going to be any different she was like hopefully you know no right what did you think of the episode though did you think it was a a good episode of Big Little Lies yeah I did I thought it was a good episode for everyone and great episode for Laura Dern yes excellent let's talk a little bit about Renata she is just like throwing a hundred this so far I mean from the Two 40-minute episodes, every single time Renata is on screen, it's just like, holy shit. Yeah, and, you know, it seems like basically Renata and Maddie are the uh, the meme generators, the content creators of Big Little Lies. Like, <laughs> don't, don't throw Mary Louise out. No, I guess she's pretty in there, too. She, Meryl's really doing a lot of gestures, like the grabbing the crucifix and putting it up on her chin. Yeah. I was like, all right, (laughs) dial it down a little bit, Iron Lady. She can't. Uh, (laughs) She can't. But, you know, the I'm curious to see what Renata's new financial situation does to her relationship to the rest of the women and also in terms of if there is going to be an investigation into whether or not Bonnie actually, you know, manslaughtered Perry. (laughs) I think what's great about Renata this season is that she's kind of almost just turned into a full parody of her character of this like super high achieving Silicon Valley tiger mom. Yeah. And I think before in the first season, it was like a little bit more subtle. But then like the line, I will not not be rich. You're just like, oh, yeah, this is what you're here for. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on on Big Little Lies this week? I'm enjoying the season. I feel like one thing that about it that's been really good is that it feels like a little bit more like a TV show, but in in that, it feels like I'm happy to spend time with Ed and Nathan almost getting into a fistfight at a coffee shop because if it's just going to be a TV show, like, let's have lots of B and C and D plots that are kind of amusing. Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it so far. It's moving along, I think. It's a little, I think it's moving on a little bit of slower of a pace than I would like. I think I'm definitely, like, really paying a lot of attention to, like, what is happening on this season on. So I feel like I would like things to pick up just a little bit more. But overall, I think it's great. Great real estate porn. Just great. A lot of, like, Oscar-nominated actresses doing their thing. What's up with, uh, with Bonnie's mom? Tough to say. I'm not sure what was going on with the crystal placement. 
and also the consumption, heavy consumption of red wine. Yes. Yeah. I mean, th- that's not unique to her mom. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering whether or not there's just like, there's a lot of Northern California vibes coming. Yes. And as someone who grew up in Northern California, I grew up like an hour north uh-huh. of Monterey. I, I recognize quite a bit of it. In terms of the healing potential of crystals and lots of hot lots yoga. Lots of like, yeah, yeah, hot yoga, spiritualness, talk, just a lot of let's be in touch with our emotions. Was that your family or were you just like a lot of friends of yours had families like that? Um, my mom definitely did employ crystals sometimes. Okay. <laughs> Leave it at that. Um, all right. Well, let's get into our conversation with Micah about another HBO show, Euphoria, which had uh, a ton more synthetic hallucinogenics being ingested than Big Little Lies. But, you know, we don't want to count Big Little Lies that, out that just That we yet. know of. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it with Micah. Now, I have an apology to make to watch listeners because I invited Micah Peters on to talk about Euphoria thinking, Micah's the closest person I'm really friends with who's <laughs> of... <laughs> Of an age to remember behavior like this that we see on Euphoria, HBO's new teen drama, which is full of sex and drugs and a little Uzi Vert. (laughs) And yet, you're 28. I am 28 as of today. Okay, happy Uh, birthday, Micah. uh, Thank you My birthday present to you is to provide a platform for your takes. Dude, this is an interesting age for you, though, because you're too old to die young. (laughs) <laughs> I was wondering how long it was going to take you to like shoehorn that into this I don't know. conversation. I, I, what you are is you are on that you are on that turn towards the final country, right? Where you're really, <laughs> really, really into adulthood with really adult problems and all of that. Beginning to like, t- I forget exactly who it was that tweeted this, but like 27 is the age where like you're the idea that you are too old for this shit and too young for this shit is collapsing in on itself. So let me ask you, are you too old for this euphoria shit? Uh, hmm. No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I did watch the the series premiere uh, last night, mm-hmm. and I found that it was a lot. Very, it was. It's a. It's a lot in the in the very first two minutes. Yes, begins with the like the very heavy voiceover from uh, Zendaya where she's talking about being born on nine eleven. A couple and, days after. Yeah, a yeah. couple days after. And her parents just spent that all of she, her first days watching footage of the towers. Exactly. Yeah. And, and t- well, I mean, like, even before that, like, the images of her coming out of the birth canal, she's just like, I fought it the whole way. I didn't want to be born. And I was just like, all right, I yeah. know where we're at now. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> like, right. I think her voiceover actually really, in a weird way, makes the show. Makes oh, the yeah. episode. Oh, I yeah. think because there's, there's a lot going on. And it's an intentionally provocative show. I think it's intentionally provocative from HBO. I think it's, you know, it's it's trying to push buttons. It's trying to make viewers at once uncomfortable, but also feel like, oh, cool, it's neon. The music is good. Exactly. Drake executive produced it. Exactly. Zendaya's in it from Spider-Man. But I, let's set it up briefly. So obviously Euphoria is the new show on HBO. It's been heavily hyped. It was heavily promoted during the end run of Game of Thrones, pretty much like these two-minute trailers before episodes of Game of Thrones. So it was definitely getting in front of a lot of eyeballs. It stars Zendaya, who a lot of people know from the Spider-Man movies, but is also a Disney actor. And she plays this girl, Rue, who is a not-really-recovering drug addict who just got out of rehab. Right. She also has OCD, potentially and anxiety personality disorder. Yeah. Right. Or she might be a teenager. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's hard to tell. <laughs> and 
Um, she is going into her junior year of high school in, uh, is it supposed to be California or Arizona? Like, I couldn't you know, tell. You know, the thing is that, like, I got the sense that it wasn't really important for you to know. It's any town Just, USA. It's exactly. Suburbs. And it's meant to, it's shot in such a way that, like, everything, like, even if it's just an alleyway or, like, a hallway or, like, you know, a room in a house feels massive. Yes. Like, so. And Sam Levinson is the showrunner of this show. He did Assassination Nation, a movie that came out a couple years ago that was equally provocative and button pushing. So the, there is no plot, really. You know, it's basically like one crazy night for the first episode. They go to a party. All these ki- all these different high school kids go to a party. They get absolutely rich trashed. trashed. Yeah. Uh, have some self-discovery. Have some moments they'll regret. And it's really just a setup. In fact, the, the episode ends with Rue meeting a woman named Jules trans woman named Jules mm-hmm. who she is obviously uh, becoming going to become friends with over the course of the season. There's a lot of like crisscross of who's doing what to whom, with whom, in what room, on what drugs. Mm-hmm. It is sensory overload in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. every frame has got somebody abusing substances. Every second has a song jammed into it. I wanted to ask you about that to start mm-hmm. off with. Because we can get into whether or not you were scandalized morally. By sure. This. Where's your head at in terms of like the way music supervision is working with stuff you're watching in terms of like how much music they are trying to jam into every single frame of TV and movies when you're watching right now? I mean, it's definitely a demonstration of like, we are very aware of the time in which this is happening mm-hmm. and that's the easiest way to explain it. Um, and what they're listening to. Exactly, I exactly. I And I mean... You have to, the the fact of the matter is, is that if you're going to have high school parties, you got to have like, you got to jam music in there. Like now, I mean, considering that I know that, you know, no Zendaya is, Zendaya is like a, a former Disney uh-huh. channel actress and then like in Spider-Man Far From Home and then, you know, occasionally some of the pop music I listen to. And then she's just like ripping like <laughs> lines off of the table to to Young Thug, and I'm just like, okay, so this is, you know, the the the, the this is the tip we're on, yeah, okay, yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, like it's it's I think that it is an accurate way of again demonstrating that you're up like with what is happening at the current time. It didn't seem forced to me in ways that it has in other shows uh, or or movies that I've seen recently, where it just feels like we had we licensed this song. Got to put know, it. Like, First we of all, it, you yeah. guys could be saving a ton of money. Just like pay somebody on SoundCloud to be like, boop, boop, <laughs> just pay boop, some type B beep. guys. Yeah, <laughs> but I think what I sort of miss. This is going to be the first of six or seven old man shit things I'm going to say is the juxtaposition of a song with what you're actually seeing and the way in which a song could like illustrate the emotional lives of the people that you're watching rather than just being like, this is what they might be listening to, but even if they're not, it's dope to have this song on. Yeah, that's like, say for instance with uh, like True Detective season one Mm -hmm. and a good friend of mine, Nate Scott, wrote about this for like All Things Go a couple years back where he was talking about the music of True Detective where in contrast to a show like Trem, or Treme, sorry, there was basically like they were just like we are in Louisiana and we are putting in all of the second line shit and we are putting in all the brass band. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have preservation hall jazz band in here and all this other stuff. And that was great. I like I loved it. But like you get more of a sense of the relationship that Rust and Cole have 
I mean, Russ Cole and uh, and Marty have with this like this really old like folk song that's like from Alabama yeah, sure. or like what or this like psychedelic rock song from this band that was in. I don't know, fucking like California somewhere. You get better. You get yeah. a better sense of the re- the relationship they have than just trying to put, you know, jazz, 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 exactly jazz, blues, to jazz. be like, hey, yeah. we are in rural Louisiana. Like, yeah, I always think of like the shit. the track, the Copacabana tracking shot in Goodfellas, where they're playing, and then he kissed me, and it's like the sound of what's going on inside of Karen as she's going into this like magical world with Henry Hill. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. like you don't need you have the tracking shot, but you don't see her face. Because you can hear how she's thinking because you're hearing, and then he kissed me. And yeah. That, that that to me is like sort of like, that's why you use pop music in a movie or a TV show, not just to be like, okay, jam it in. Yeah, it's kind of like thinking about it the same way as, uh, you know, a shot of cereal and then a, a face contorted just the right way creates the idea of hunger or whatever. The cool show yeah. effect. It's like the same thing, but you don't like have to make it like the lyrics don't have to literally say what is happening in the in the Absolutely. scene and like yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the content. Um, <laughs> yeah, were you scandalized at all? Uh, there are a lot of there were tough to watch scenes in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it was like. It was a lot of being like no 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 at the at the TV screen, um, but. I mean, it's not like I think that it you can only really really be scandalized by it if you feel like if you are so naive as to think that things like this don't happen. Yeah. It's just that, you know, like you're questioning whether or not you sh- whether you need to see it on on screen or not. Like the scene with Jules in the in the hotel room. Right, with Eric Dane. That was tough. Like I Mick it steamy was, coming back. It was just like as soon as like I saw her get up off the bike in front of the hotel in front of the motel, I was like, no. It had fuck, a gr- grim fuck. a Grimm's fairy tale vibe. Yeah, too, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was a really tough scene. I think I, I think anybody watching is gonna find 15 or 20 things where like, oh God, dude. Yeah. Teenagers really do that. But I mean, like, you know, like, then there will be the parts where it, like, pulls back and it's just like, all right, this is, you know, like, we kind of have an understanding. Like, there's a moral compass here somewhat. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where, uh, what is it? What is the guy's name? McKay? Yeah, McKay and... Uh, Carly? I think. I think it's McKay. I think it's McKay and Carly. Yeah. I've, but anyway, where he gets, like too aggressive yes and like then there's like the the pause and then the voiceover comes in and it's just like this doesn't end in rape yeah and I was just like oh god thank god <laughs> it's a it's a difficult what, the, the sensation you're describing is what you're like well and you know I just spent like 30 minutes talking with Adam about why am I watching this mm-hmm. you know and for me too old to die young it's uh, visually interesting and it's asking enough interesting artistic questions to me and also I just like like watching stories that are about what it's about mm-hmm. the euphoria is kind of a flip side where you're just like okay like what am I really learning here and now yeah. I think part of that is that you can get really myopic and get into this, this soap opera stuff mm-hmm. and I loved uh, I think it was like Maddie and Kat who were all like vaping in the car and in their in her bedroom and they were just talking shit. Like I like all there's a couple of really yeah. good banter scenes. But I guess it's like what are you watching it for? Are you watching it to learn about like what are the systemic kind of societal things that create a world in which this kind of shit happens or are you trying to say it's it's always like this. This is just different pills 
different sex, yeah. different, you yeah. know. It's, and, I, and I could not, I mean, like, and I've only watched one episode. I can't tell whether it's one thing or the other. Yeah. But I do know that I am very into Rue and Jules' relationship. Okay. Like, I, I want to know more about that just because of, I don't know. At some point early in the episode, Rue's talking about, like, having a voiceover after a fight with her mom. And she's just talking about, like, I'm not a... Like, I'm not delicate, and her mom's just like, yes, you are, mm-hmm. and this is, like, a whole thing that you do, like, to put up walls of distance in between yeah. yourself and other people. So, like, her relationship with Jules towards the end of it after they meet is kind of, like, that sensation of this is the first person that I've met that doesn't want anything for me, doesn't think anything, like, doesn't judge me in any way, and, like, that being like friendly but also maybe romantic and maybe whatever like you know you just want to be in the like the friendship that they have yeah yeah i mean they really found something pretty special with those two performances i think yeah i think it's hunter schaefer, hunter schaefer. and zendaya really have incredible chemistry they seem like they have like a lot of empathy with each other it's a very palpable connection when they meet towards the end of the episode. Yeah. Also, uh, she's a trans woman playing a trans woman, yeah. which is not like a, a GLAD survey from 2017, 2018 was said that that was represented like 5% of television. Yeah. Like, so. What's up with the dude, Nate, the jock, never wearing a shirt? <laughs> so, okay. I was thinking about this <laughs> shit. stop wearing shirts And I now? was just like, I was just like, I'm, no. I mean, like, it's like, be, be do whatever you want to do. But I just didn't get the memo that we were all not wearing shirts anymore. I mean, frat parties in college, there's a lot of shirtless dudes, Is number there? one. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, like, also, I was kind of going back and forth in my head, ab- in, uh, in my head about that. Because I was just like, is this just like a cartoonish representation of like, this like chest thumping machismo thing Mm -hmm. or and then I was just thinking about when he walked back into his house after the night was over and he was wearing a shirt again finally yes and I was just like oh not have been driving but yeah exactly yeah I was just like oh well I mean like if you're gonna like you know I remember thinking in high school that like if I could just change like my shirt and my put everything in it they wouldn't notice right so it's just like if i can if i can get in the door with a shirt that smells like not like i haven't been out doing dirt or whatever Uh then everything will be fine but the thing is is that you come to realize later in life that it's in your hair it's not on your clothes (laughs) (laughs) i had that experience with my dad when i uh I came back, yeah, I was actually in my early 20s at this point, or maybe I was like 19 or 20, I can't remember. But I came back home for Thanksgiving or something, and I was like lying, I was sleeping, not in my room, I was sleeping like in in a different room, one that he would like more easily like walk into, and he walked in and he saw my tattoo for the first time, <laughs> and he was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I was like, how did I think I was going to never see my dad without my arm exposed <laughs> ever again? You really think that it's just like a thing that you can just never have to talk about? Right. Because I got my first tattoo up high enough on my shoulder so that I could either hide it or go Kiefer Sutherland stand by me <laughs> and roll my camel lights up in my t-shirt uh, yeah. shoulder and be like, yeah, I'm a badass, even though I'm like standing here outside of Newberry Comics. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it did not. 
I, I think I got like three months of, of private tattoo and then and then it was out in the open. My parents like were cool about it, but they were they were yeah. also just like, what the hell is it's going just like, on? What's with you? what's you know, like what's this about? What's going on with yeah. you? Yeah. Uh are you engaged enough to keep it on keep going with you for you? I think I'm gonna keep going for the next couple of weeks at least. I, I mean like I am interested enough. And fi- I'm sorry that the scene where Jules like is is uh, what's the jock character's name Nate Nate yeah and she's like I'm invincible and she, well, well, like she's just like that scene was was like cheering at the TV yeah. but also I think that there's probably something sad behind that kind of reaction like uh, yeah I think for every yeah, I think everybody I, involved is kind of sad with the exception of the little kid dealer living in the back of a beer cooler oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that dude I hope that guy's got like some north face uh, I mean because I guess it's like to keep his pills cold or stay out of the way but I, I, we could find like a, a more moderate temperature for my, my little man to sell apparently chemically engineered psychedelics. Yeah, just 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 wild synthetic drugs. Um, okay. Well, I because I was the reason I was asking if you're engaged enough is we were, I was just talking to Adam about Tool Dayong, and one of the things that I think is a challenge for some people is that it is immediately like 13 hours of homework that's sitting right oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. like there's a, even me and Miles from our site have been slacking back and forth. He's like, what episode are you on? And I'm like, three. And I felt like I deserved a merit badge for getting through three, but he's like, I'm done. And I'm like, Jesus, man, I got like nine more hours to catch up on this. I wonder what the reaction to Euphoria would be if it was all already available. Like, do you think you would have watched another one last night? I think I probably would have watched another one last night. I mean, like, I watched all of... Okay, so when I was, I got I got six study when I was studying abroad in France and ended up watching like four seasons of Skins. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the this, this show's single, closest exactly. Fantasy, yeah. And I mean, like, and so chances are, if it was all available, I would have watched at least like two or three. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's it'll it'll be fascinating to see whether or not they can sustain this level of substance abuse without obviously like losing characters. Yeah. And also just like whether or not the pitch that this show is operating at in terms of its intensity is something that people are able to keep up with. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a lot to ask. All right, Micah, thank you so much for coming by to talk about Euphoria. Of course. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Watch. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by City on a Hill, the new drama series from Showtime starring Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge. City on a Hill airs Sundays at 9 p.m. only on Showtime. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's members-only exclusive rates and more. Visit NavyFederal.org watch for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. 